This is the Engineering Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Avi Noda. This week's guest is Manuel Pais, one of the authors of the book Team Topologies. Many of our episodes here focus on platform teams and enablement work, so I thought to myself, who better to have on our show than someone who's written a defining book around these topics? Manuel and I start our conversation with the definition of platform and enabling teams and what their key differences are. We then talk about how to actually do enabling work and how to think about a team's activities in terms of both long-term strategy and short-term execution. We wrap up by discussing cognitive load, how to measure it, and where platform engineering is headed in the future. This is a practical conversation focused on how to apply concepts from team topologies to the type of work that we regularly discuss on this show. So whether you're already a fan of the book or are eager to learn some of its key concepts, I think you'll find this conversation valuable. Manuel, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I quite enjoyed the podcast. Oh, thanks. Glad you're enjoying it. Well, I reread your book last week ahead of this show and first wanted to just pay you my compliments here personally because it's such a fascinating book particularly relevant to my work and I think listeners of the show who, as you know, are involved in platform and enablement work. So today I want to start with some of the fundamental topics, namely around the definitions around platform teams and enabling teams. And a way to start the discussion might be, there's been a few comments recently from notable people such as Sam Newman. He wrote an article recently called Don't Call It Platform, Call It Enablement, right? And a few weeks ago on this podcast, I spoke with Mike Fisher, former CTO of Etsy, who also mentioned that they explicitly decided to not call their teams platform teams and instead enablement teams. When I was reading your book, again, I realized that you actually define these two distinct types of teams, enabling teams and platform teams. So I want to kind of dive into those two different types of teams and start by asking you, you know, what's your opinion on what Sam Newman shared around the naming problem? Sure. I think you got the main point is that it's a naming problem and it's a behavioral problem. And so I can first tell you quickly from the, the point of view of the Team Topologies book, what we try to do is exactly define more precisely what is platform team, what is an enabling team, so that we have kind of a better shared understanding of what we say a team is a platform team, what should they be aiming for? And if we say a team is an enabling team, what should they be aiming for? And so for us, we took the definition of a, of a digital platform as being a set of tools, APIs, can be just a, a wiki page, something that allows other teams to self-serve, first of all, and to basically accelerate their own work. So usually we're talking about product teams that consume the platform services. And... So a platform team essentially ends up being an internal product team, a team that creates services and, and tools and products, if you want to call it that, um, for internal use in the organization. And then we talk about expected behaviors and so on. And this actually helps bring closer together platform teams and product teams because you can actually adopt similar ways of working. You can adopt similar techniques to understand your customers. The difference is that platform teams have internal customers and product teams or stream aligned teams, as we call them in the book for specific reasons, have external customers, right? Customers that are outside the organization. And so they're pretty close, but there are some important differences. In First, the, the type of, uh, usually the type of services and uh, are more technical in the platform. They might have less of an actual user interface, but they still need to have a good user experience. And finally, the customers are internal, they're not external, which has pros and cons. It means we should have more direct access to our customers because they are peers at the end of the day. And if that's not the case, then there's probably other issues going on in the organization. But they're also, because they are peers, they might be more demanding or... Um, we might assume we know what they want from the platform, and that's not always the case if we don't actually do the, the customer research work. And so that's why fundamentally platform teams end up being very similar to what a lot of people call product teams, but there are some fundamental differences that it's important to keep in mind. And enabling teams 
in team topologies have a specific focus, which is helping the product teams bridge some capability gaps, whatever that might be. It might be something more technical around whatever test automation or observability or SRE, or it can be something more around product design or even kind of more business aspects or legal aspects. It can be anything that where there's a need from usually several teams to be helped by an enabling team of experts. Um, so these are the fundamental, two of the fundamental types of teams we talk about in the book. And we made this differentiation because if you understand well, what is your mission? Is it to, to bridge capability gaps and how should we do that? Or is it to end up providing services that help teams accelerate their work? And how should we do that? Now, in reality, what tends to happen often, a pattern we've seen is that you combine this into the same team might be doing platform work and enabling work. And that's okay, as long as this is very clear for the team itself and for the people outside the team, for their customers. What you don't want to do is say you have a team that is doing some enabling work, trying to, maybe they're pairing with, with another team, explaining how do you automate some tests or how do you do certain things. They don't really um, have the experience. And then that person gets called because there's a problem in the platform and they have to leave, for example. That's the kind of thing you don't want to happen because that breaks the trust from that other team that was uh, being helped or being in enabled. What we also have heard many times since the book came out is that it provides a shared language. Again, the naming is maybe not the most important. We could have called um, Avocados team instead of platform team. But that wouldn't, you know, from a naming perspective would be weird. But effectively, what's more important is the behaviors and what is the, the mission of this type of team. So that the teams who self-identify as platform team, as we described in the book, know, okay, we need to be doing this, this, and that. And we need to be looking at, are we helping the teams actually go faster? Or are we becoming a bottleneck? Then we're not being a real platform team in the sense of team topologies. Now, if organizations feel that it's important to give other names to these teams or Sam Newman, who I highly respect and we, we know each other and we've, we've done some, some presentations together as well. Um, I fully understand where it's coming from and I think it's fair and that what I would recommend is for any organization to define internally and have a shared language because especially in large organizations, you see even different parts of organization, what you call a platform team, might be behaving a totally different way from what is called also platform team in another part of the organization. So that's where team topologies, a lot of people have said helped kind of have a shared language and we can reference the ideas in the book. And it's not so much about, did we get the right name? It's about, does this help us understand what kind of work and what kind of behaviors this type of team should have? Well, thanks so much for explaining that. I, I know your book obviously covers this, but I just thought it's such an important topic to highlight for listeners. I want to sort of recap. You said so many interesting things there. One thing that struck me was that to summarize, platform is really about internal product, whereas enabling teams are almost more of like internal consulting. Is, is that an okay mental model in your in your view to think about it that way? Yeah, definitely. If the consultants are doing uh, a good work, then yes, internal consulting would be a good way to to describe it for me. Obviously, in this fundamental aspect of enabling teams is that they shouldn't become a dependency. So let's say between quotes here, if you can't see the video right now, is that if the enabling team is becoming a, a dependency where do you say, well, now this product team can never do X, Y, Z without asking for help from the enabling team, that's the wrong, that's an anti-pattern in terms of a fast flow. It means you're not actually capacitating this team to do those things by themselves. You just introduce the blocking dependency with this other team internally. And so, and well, some consultancies, that's their, their business model where you, you put people in the organization and then the organization becomes dependent on them. That's not what we're talking about. So if it's consulting in that sense that we, we come to help you learn and to help you capacitate you to do things uh, more autonomously, then yeah, totally uh, makes sense. And just a, a note, I think, again, it's it's a matter of terminology and I'm not a, a native English speaker, but enablement is uh, is a noun, right? So I think it's something that we 
try to achieve. And the way that we achieve it is maybe with enabling teams and, and platform teams. That's kind of how I see it in, in my my mental model, my the way I, I look at the terminology. But of course, you can use, and we see a lot of uh, organizations that call enablement teams, and that's okay as well. Again, what does the enablement team do? How do you know if, if, if they're helping or if they're becoming a bottleneck or a blocker to other teams? That's the key thing to consider. You mentioned earlier that you see a lot of examples where a team is both a platform team and enabling team, right? And to move out of labels, we just mean they sort of take upon them the responsibilities and characteristics of both of those types of teams. I see a lot of examples of that too. For example, a lot of developer experience teams I meet with talk about wanting to promote best practices and guide and coach teams at the same time as they're building internal infrastructure and shared services. And I see a lot of these leaders getting a little bit stuck on the first part, the enabling part, the consulting part, if you will. So I want to ask you, I mean, first of all, does it actually work well in your view to do both? And then what are some examples or a example you've seen where this is actually being done in practice? That's super interesting. And there are multiple aspects here. And we actually, interestingly, we've been working on, on a new video-based uh, training for our academy, which is about effective enabling teams, where we talk a lot about some patterns, anti-patterns. So one key thing that we've observed uh, in organizations is that creating enabling teams is hard because typically leadership doesn't necessarily see what is this going to be the value of this enabling team because we can see the cost. We have these experts, which tend to be costly, working f- with other teams and we we can sense that's good, but we can't measure it directly. So that's one key problem. So to address that, it can actually, and that's what I recommend to clients is, okay, start small. You don't need to go ahead and create two, three, five enabling teams. Just, you probably already have the expertise. Uh, so if you have, maybe it can be a platform team that has expertise around SRE, for example, and that's something that product teams need help with. But it could also be that you have maybe a team of, uh, let's say, UX experts. And that's, again, something that uh, is a bottleneck today because this centralized team does all the UXing, if that's a word. Um, and we want the product teams to have more skills around that. Then why don't you ask those teams to start dedicating a bit of time, whatever that might be, 20%, 30% or less of their time. Let's just do some enabling work. Just actually get started and see on the ground, what is this providing? Is this helping or not? What are the things we're discovering that, well, actually, and that's where you you get a lot of new insights that you'd never even realize that, well, team A and team B actually already know about that, or they don't know about this other thing that we thought everyone knew about. Because that's also something we talk about in the book. You never have two teams that are exactly the same. Every team is different. They have different experience, different background inside and outside of the organization. So you need to meet those teams where they are. And so without doing that, enabling work is going to be difficult. This is some sort of patterns to get started with enabling uh, work, which is you know tends to be hard for organizations to buy into uh, more fully until they see some value. So having teams doing a bit of enabling work, of course, you need to have some control that it doesn't go, you know, suddenly you're, like you were saying, you're spending all your time doing enabling work and you don't have time for the other stuff that, that you had in your roadmap. So you have you have to be careful and you have to say no to, to, to other teams when, when it's going, uh, when they're asking too many things, which is a good sign, means you're helping them, but you need to be careful. And then show the value, show that, well, we were able to help this other team and now they can do, let's say they are able to, manage their uh, error budgets by themselves, if we're talking about SRE, for example. Now they understand that, they're able to manage that, and we don't have to be telling them, well, stop developing new features because your reliability is, is suffering. And so you you start seeing the value, right? And then you might have a better case to, okay, maybe we should have, maybe it's just a couple of people who are SRE enabling team uh, because we know there's 
need in the organization across our product teams or streamlined teams that we know we need this enabling team around SRE is going to have work for a while. And one example that uh, works quite well is from a company. Well, one example where they, where they apply this idea is quite well, I think, is from a company called U-Switch in the, in the UK. So they um, provide services to compare and switch between internet providers, uh, mobile uh, providers, etc. And so they introduced as a very small SRE team, enabling team, that does exactly this. They are on the ground with the product teams, helping them learn this stuff, helping them adopt the right tools to help them, etc. And they are at the same time sensors. They are bringing what they see on the ground to the platform teams that provide services around SRE. And so that's a quite nice model. And I do believe it's, if you can, it's better to separate the two teams because especially for platform teams, you already have so much on your plate between developing, between operating your services, understanding your customers, doing product management inside the platform, asking them to do enabling work is yet another thing. And they might be able to do it, but you, if you can have a separation between there, here's a small team doing enabling work and here's platform team and have the flexibility for these things to change over time where you might have people who are doing enabling work we're in the enabling team now. They want to come to the platform team, or vice versa. That's a good, I think, approach that have fluidity between these teams as well, in terms of their composition. But that's again a sort of anti-pattern we see where teams have to be fixed, and it's very difficult for people to move between teams, and so then it becomes more of a need to try to dis- do the org design up front and and assume we get the right model. And that's usually another, a bigger anti-pattern that we see. Well, I really appreciate the advice earlier around starting small and demonstrating the value gradually. That's something we want to talk about later in this conversation around just how to get buy-in for platform teams and enabling teams in general. I want to stay on the topic of enabling teams for a little bit longer, because as I mentioned, I think it's an area where so many leaders I talk to get a little bit stuck. So I want to ask you, what are the ways of actually delivering the enabling work within an organization? So let's say you're a person or a team that sees this opportunity for helping other teams, let's say, improve code review processes, just as an example. Like, what do you actually do? I mean, do you create content and just you know educate people through guides? Do you conduct and advertise live workshops? Do you just go plug yourself in the teams and show up, knock on their door and say, hey, can I help your team? Like, how do you actually build the practice of an enabling team? I think all the above, all the things you mentioned can help. That's part of the work of the enabling team is figure out what are the more effective ways to help these teams. And you might even have the case where for different teams and you're trying to sort of help them in the, with the same things, you might take different approaches where one team actually prefers to get, let's imagine they want to have a bit more classical training or a workshop, and then they'll try it out by themselves. And then you come back and, and help them kind of course correct. And maybe you have other teams where they just want to get started. Let's start doing this in practice and we'll figure out. And then maybe you do more of a pairing or even mobbing between the enabling, uh, some people from the enabling team and the actual product team, creating content. In a way, you can see an enabling team is almost like a curator, right? So this is this idea of a curator is quite used in, in arts and, and uh, where you have essentially someone or a team that because they have more experience, they're able to kind of bring the knowledge in a much more consumable way to the other teams. And so that can be even be just you know curating some content, which is, I think, a misconception in in general in IT is assuming oh people just learn by themselves and teams can just pick up new technologies and, and tools, and yes they can, but it has a cost that is often not really visible, and teams have to take a lot of shortcuts, so then the end result is not as great, and so that's where partially where the value of an enabling team might be in that curation of helping the teams go, you know, adopt some new approaches or adopt some new practices very quickly and in with the right direction, the right guidance. 
but yeah, the way that enabling teams can do that is is anything that helps the other teams uh, learn, improve, uh, bridge the, the gaps that they have without creating a dependency. The other quite important aspect of, of doing enabling work is, like I said earlier, you have to meet the teams that you're helping where they are today. You have to first understand that. And secondly, think about what is the smallest step that they can take that I that we as enabling team can help them achieve. Because that's another problem that I see is that, okay, we're trying to teach everything we know in <laughs> two weeks or even two months. And that's the other team is not going, that's not how people learn in general. You need to take small steps. And so we talk about in the book about the enabling team sort of orbiting around the product teams, meaning, you know, if you've never done test automation, we're going to help you. Or if you've never done code reviews that you mentioned, we're going to help you understand what makes a good code review, what are the anti-patterns, anti-patterns in a code review. And then we'll come back maybe in a couple of months and see how you're doing, what help do you need next. Maybe you need help figuring out. Now you've done some code reviews. You understand better when they, how helpful they might be. Now maybe you need some helpful tools maybe to help you do some things more effectively, some aspects of the code review, et cetera. So just this idea of, helping those teams learn in a kind of step-by-step way, not trying to push all, all that we know and all that we can help them with, yes, but it has to be in a consumable way. So that's also an important aspect. And then there are some factors that might influence also how you provide this knowledge. So in the book, we talked about an example where if you have an enabling team that's mostly composed of external consultants that you brought in, because they have some expertise. In this case, it was around continuous delivery, testing, deployment pipelines, et cetera. Then probably you want that enabling team to create, not just that they're helping now, but also they create content that can be consumed and they create some useful uh, guidance and so on. If you have an internal enabling team, then maybe you don't need to focus as much on, on creating that content. You need to be more pairing and mobbing and so on. But it's of course, ends up being a balance of different activities that we need to do. Yeah, I really love the analogy or concept of curation and the art analogy you shared. That's something I've definitely seen some enabling team leaders start to do that I personally know and work with. There's been, for example, projects where they try to curate a ton of different content and guides around a ton of different topics around developer productivity or developer experience and serve that to the rest of the organization, at least as a starting point for helping those teams adopt better practices or think about ways to improve. So yeah, thanks for your perspective on it. And I think that's a recommendation I'll continue to to make to others as well. And again, on that point, you end up with this kind of let's say joint work or work between enabling and platform because some of that content might be, let's say it's part of the platform because it helps people on board, helps people understand how do I use this monitoring service, for example. And other times it's not, it doesn't end up in the platform, it's just some content and, and guidance that the enabling team provides to, to the teams they work with. Yeah, absolutely. That I've seen that example as well. Shifting topics a little bit, you know, we've talked about the differences between enabling teams and platform teams. It's my observation that there are definitely a good amount of enabling teams. So whatever they're called, but they primarily are enabling teams and they're long lived. And in the book, one thing I that stuck out to me was that you guys talked about how in- enabling teams should be short-lived, that they should only last for as long as they're they're really needed. So I'm curious, I mean, do you see like long-lived enabling teams as an anti-pattern? Do you see examples of that? And and how should organizations try to break out of that? I would say yes and no. It's an interesting question. Also, our uh, thinking has evolved in, in the last three years since we published the book. And again, it's something we're covering in this this new video course about effective enabling teams. And there's a really good case study that we're going to publish and will become available um, to everyone. And in this case study, because I think it's easier to explain if we look at an example in this case, what this organization was was doing was adopting data science and, and machine learning, et cetera. This is a, an online retail company. And so their journey started quite a, a while back, I think almost 10 years ago. Um, and what was initially 
okay, we're hiring some people who know about data science and they create models and they help other teams integrate the models in their applications, et cetera. And then over time, because more and more teams needed help with, with data science, this model was not working anymore because this central team was a total bottleneck or became a bottleneck. And so they couldn't keep up with the pace of, of demand. And so without actually calling them enabling teams, the book wasn't out yet at that time even, they started having um, a few teams in a sort of centralized department, but part of what they were doing were kind of helping grow this capability around data science for all the teams. And so, for example, something they would do, which is very much what we would expect from an enabling team, is to understand, okay, what do teams need? What are the problems they have around data science in this case? And so they had, besides talking to teams, but this is you know, a medium-sized organization, they also had, for example, a chat channel where people could just talk about their the issues they're facing. And so they were basically identifying different problems across the organization in terms of their data science capabilities and then trying to help uh, whether that was with kind of short-lived enabling teams where they could kick off a, a team to say, okay, we've identified there's a common problem understanding whatever some technology that teams are trying to use. We have a short-lived enabling team that goes and help those teams and Maybe we expect that to last maybe three months or up to six months, something like that. We kind of have an expectation of when this, this short-lived enabling team won't be needed anymore. And so those people might end up going to another short-lived enabling team. Uh, sometimes people might end up moving to product team because the team maybe has a higher demand for data science. They actually need an expert inside the team. And so what was happening, and of course this looking in hindsight, is that some people who were more kind of the data leads were acting as a long-lived enabling team effectively. And their goal was more to identify the gaps across the organization, help grow the data science capability across the organization. And so they were not as much on the day-to-day helping address specific gaps of teams. They were kind of looking at the organization level. And that's why I think you end up, for certain capabilities at least, needing combination of long-lived that now we started calling sometimes structural enabling teams that have a more strategic view on what do we need to do about this capability to grow across the organization versus the short-lived enabling teams that are typically tackling a more specific problem that maybe multiple teams have that you know we, we might need for a period of time, but we don't expect that this team needs to live for forever, basically, or for a long time. When you look at it at the end of the day, is about understanding, do these teams have a purpose that is valuable for the organization, right? And if in that example, that, that structural data science enabling team had a continuous purpose, maybe one day they will say, well, now we have AI, we don't, <laughs> and we have generative AI, we don't even need this anymore, who knows? But it's sort of for that that organization, this made sense to have this ongoing team that was looking at more structural and strategic aspects of, of growing the capability versus the, well, not versus together with the short-lived enabling teams. So yes, in the book, we started saying they should be short-lived because that also helps with the focus on this shouldn't become a, a dependency or a blocking dependency that teams say, oh, can you come help us because we need to have a new data science model or can you can help us because we don't, uh, we're not able to, to extract or the, the, compose the right data or whatever. The enabling team is there to help those teams gain the skills and gain the capability that they're lacking, not to help them with a specific, let's say, um, execution problem without helping them learn. Yeah, well, I really love that last point the clarification and the importance of that enabling work is to help the internal customer gain the capability, not to do the work for them, not to be the outsourced staff augmentation arm of, of a product team. And also love the approach you shared before that around this combination of having the, the long-lived strategic portion of thinking about, okay, what are the right types of enabling work that we should be doing? 
combined with the short-lived, more tactical teams that are doing that, delivering that capability to, to other teams. So really like like those concepts. I want to go back a little bit full circle to the Sam Newman article, because another, I think, takeaway from that article is that he's been critical of the over-obsession or the fad, if you will, of like building platforms. And I think we would probably both agree that there is a bit of a fad around this right now. What's your take on this problem? And what's your advice to leaders to avoid the trap of just thinking of platform teams as developer platform builders and forgetting about the rest? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't have an ideal answer, but I think multiple things. One is, I think platform engineering, in a way that I think that's kind of the the movement or the the approach that has been gaining a lot of traction that also got a lot of resistance when there was the, the meme about the DevOps is dead or something like that. I think it's helpful that we gain more visibility on that we need platforms, we need platform engineering. What I think is, but there are some dangers, I think, and that's, I believe, what Sam is also referring to, which is to over-focus on the technology and platform for the sake of the platform. And in team topologies, we clearly say that platform teams have a, a specific goal, which is to reduce cognitive load of the product teams, which means, in other words, to help accelerate them, help them do the work that they need to do in a way that is more efficient, faster, without having to know a lot of the details that maybe are not as relevant for a product team should be focused on the business and the customers, and a lot of the underlying technology details and sometimes the practices, if possible, should be sort of abstracted so that they can, they don't have to spend as much of their um, cognitive capacity on those things. And again, the use switch example I mentioned before, and I should say it's, there's a case study on our, our website on teamtopologies.com slash examples, you will find the use switch uh, case study because that's really where they, they didn't have a platform and they introduced it because they felt our product teams, which were quite successful until now or for a good while, now are suffering and they don't have time to focus on what customers need anymore. They're spending all their time focusing on the infrastructure and the tooling and et cetera. So I think platforms are needed and internal developer platforms and all these kind of more infrastructure and technical aspects are needed. But we should always keep in mind what is the value we're providing to the other teams and to the organization. Because there's a very real risk of the platform actually blocking those teams. Because if we put too much inside the platform and we say, and this is an, something I've seen, it's an anti-pattern that goes both ways to the platform teams and product teams. Platform teams become sort of quite attached to their domain to say, no, this is part of our domain. This is belongs to the infrastructure platform. And the product teams also kind of as, I think almost as a reaction to that, tend to say, oh, we need some new service, for example, uh, from AWS. Oh no, we're going to wait for the platform team to implement them. But because that's not a priority for the platform team, they just stand still and there's a little bit of blaming that starts happening and that's not good for anyone. So that's one of the, of the anti-patterns is not realizing the boundaries of the platform need to be more flexible. I love a quote from Ruth Mallon, who wrote the, the preface for our book as well. Well, she says, architecture is a lot about what's in and out of the, the different services and how they move over time, right? So this idea that it should be more fluid. And so if your platform is responsible for some services and is becoming a blocker to other teams who need to do different stuff, then you need to figure that out. Maybe some teams who are more product teams should be allowed to go on a off track a little bit because they have specific needs and they're sort of more pioneers and they're going to try this stuff out and eventually it might come back to the platform. Or even you realize that your platform boundaries that you defined in the beginning or earlier were not correct. You were you know, putting too many things in the platform. This tends to happen more for kind of core business functionality type of platforms or say we have you know, for example, the services around our shopping cart or we have services around payment in, in a kind of business services platform, 
And sometimes we put too much in there. And so we're reducing flexibility of product teams. So yes, those are some anti-patterns. And then there's a whole other kind of world of platforms that we could think about and that we're starting to see, which are not even technical at all. Uh, You can think about design platforms, which many organizations already think about that. Not, I wouldn't say the majority, but many do, where it is a platform, even if we what we provide is self-service artifacts and branding and guidelines, but teams can consume that in a self-service way and they have support from a sort of design platform team. So that fits the same pattern. It's helping accelerate the, the product teams by providing these helpful artifacts, even if they're not running services. And then we can go to other areas. You can have uh, data platforms, which is also becoming more popular and we have the great book, uh, Data Mesh, that, uh, as well, to look into that. But even other platforms, we're starting to see a small number, but we start to see organizations where the, the legal team, for example, is looking at themselves as a platform. So they're trying to help, at least for common kind of simpler cases, for example, provide services, again, might be artifacts or even actual services that teams can use, for example, to sign NDAs or to sign common contracts that you need to sign with partners or what have you. We're starting to see also, uh, there's a really interesting example from a company called Capra Consulting. They're based in, in Norway. They actually try to apply team topologies approach to the whole organization. And so leadership starts seeing themselves as sort of platform plus enabling team like we were talking about before, but it's nothing to do with building technical platforms. Is They actually provide some artifacts to the teams, for example, uh, mirror boards to help the teams think about their own strategy, to help teams realize where is the company trying to go and what's going to move the needle and so that they align their own product or their own initiatives as a team to those goals. But they consume that kind of artifact that is created by the leadership team in a sort of platformish way, if I can say that. And we even have other other examples that we hope will become case studies where there's an example where you have actually a business group that has multiple companies and one of the companies acts as a platform to the others. And they provide both technical services as well as HR as a service, uh, legal as a service. And so that's almost kind of, yeah, a little bit mind-blowing. And there are some traps in there as well in terms of If you have a separate company, how does this company interact with our company? What are the good patterns and how to avoid problems with, you know, lack of trust between different companies, lack of communication, but it's an interesting model. And so there's, I think, so much potential to look at um, platforms beyond just uh, the current focus, I would say, or fad, if you, uh, according to Sam, in terms, in terms of the focus on technical platforms alone. There's so much more where we, if we adopt this idea of how can we make this easy for others to consume and to do a lot of stuff by themselves in a self-service way versus depending on us as the experts on any area, legal, marketing, HR, not just technical areas. This last description and example around the broader ways in which the platform teams can be applied to all kinds of domains is really interesting. And the last thing you said around service, again, brings me back to that concept of productization is at the core of you know what platform teams are focused on. One thing you said that was really interesting was that the North Star for a platform team is to reduce cognitive load for others. And as you were saying that, a thought popped into my head, what if the biggest factor causing cognitive load isn't self-service infrastructure, which is what, as, as we know, a lot of organizations are focused on. So I want to hold that thought, though, for a moment and kind of bridge into something else. So recently on the show, I had Mike Fisher, former CTO of Etsy, and Jean-Michel Lemieux, former CTO of Atlassian. And both of them talked about failures to get platform teams off the ground and ultimately leaning towards the preference of having this type of work, reducing cognitive load work, not fanned out to dedicated teams, but rather owned by the product teams themselves. So I want to ask you, first of all, do you think in general, 
people are creating too many platform teams in the same way that like microservices was sort of a fad and people created them and then later realized, oh, maybe we we went a little overkill. Like, do you sense that the same thing is happening with platform teams or, or not? It's a good question. And by the way, I, I saw a bit of the podcast with uh, Mike Fisher and I thought there were some great points in there. I think it's possible that some organizations are creating too many platform teams. In fact, just recently, I did a little bit uh, short engagement with a really large fashion retailer, and that was exactly what they were trying to do. So they wanted a bit of uh, review of their approach, and they had already all these platform teams, and we're going to create all these services, and we're like, hey, wait a second, <laughs> how do you avoid that they go into a, a hole where we're building all this stuff, and then we come out of the hole and actually no one really wants to use that or they don't feel like it's helpful. And so that was our recommendation. It was like, start by doing enabling work, which is, you know, ties into what we were saying before. That enabling work is going to first provide value to the teams because you're on the ground with them. It's going to provide value to them, improve their skills, even if it's just improving awareness around things like security, improving your awareness around servability and um other things that they want to, to improve as an organization. But just start with that groundwork with the teams. And it's going to build trust, actually, which is often underestimated how important that is in an organization. Trust between what will be possibly platform teams and the product teams. Before you even build any technology, before you build any service, get that people to know each other and to trust. And it's totally different when you have... You know, there's some platform team in the organization and sometimes you hear about some new service or you're told you have to adopt some new service and you have no direct connection, no link to those people on that team versus, oh yeah, that's the team where uh, Mike works. And yeah, I remember he helped us, you know, figure out this stuff a couple of months ago. It's totally different and very underestimated. And so I think possibly part of those kind of failed attempts to create platform teams also has to do with this, with this social aspects that we don't effectively take the time to consider and to focus on. And so in that case of that client, that's basically what we recommend. Yes, you can get to platform teams and we can see, like you're seeing how helpful this could be, but it could also, you could have the right services, you could have the right tools, which by itself is, is difficult if you don't communicate a lot with your customers. But let's assume you know exactly what they need and you build that and you still might not get the adoption that you should be looking at. So do some enabling work that's going to bring a lot of benefits and especially it's going to allow you to understand your actual customer needs much better. Time and time again, I haven't seen a case where organization and teams started doing enabling work that they didn't come up with new insights that they never thought about. Oh, I didn't never thought about that that team does this and that or they have this need or that they already do some really cool stuff and I never knew about it, even if I'm the expert in that domain. And then, you know, build platforms slowly. But that's partially a leadership problem where we want results immediately and we want to, whatever, reduce, improve lead time by X percent in uh, six months. Well, you need to discover a lot of this stuff. And so you need, like with Agile, you need to be learning and doing stuff and learn, and then you at some point be able to have better kind of uh, metrics and you will see the results and you'll be able to measure that more precisely, but you cannot want and assume you can do that from the beginning. So that's, in my experience, where I see a lot of problems with platform teams is just, okay, we've created the teams and now they're going to go off and build all this cool stuff. And the intention is good. No one's trying to do the wrong thing. But the approach is not conducive to bidirectional understanding and trust. And that's where, in my opinion, things often go wrong. And that's where people start saying, oh, platform teams don't work. And we've cost sync where we spent all this money on these teams. And now we don't see the value for the product teams, et cetera. And so that's one aspect. I think the other aspect that you were talking about, and especially what Mike Fisher said, that I agree to me is more about the boundaries of platform, as I was saying before. Sometimes the product teams need to, this model of a platform that provides services doesn't always work when there are things that actually need the product team to do the discovery. And so I don't have a better advice than just be open to discuss what are the boundaries and be open to say, well, this is discovery work that the product team needs to do. Eventually we might realize it makes sense in the platform, but 
sometimes we need to take a step back and say, well, we thought this was more straightforward and part of, of our platform service, but actually should be in the streamlined team's hands. And often what happens as well related to that is just this idea that we must avoid duplication at all costs. But sometimes duplicating to some extent, maybe some functionality that two or three teams are implementing product teams, which is sort of similar, but turns out they actually have different needs because they have different markets or user personas they're targeting. Or when you have a good product development approach, it might make sense that something that seemed the same is actually, at least for a while, should evolve separately with some degree of duplication. And we accept that because we want to go faster in the discovery for each of these teams. And at some point, we can always reconcile and say, we know enough by now to realize what is common and could go in the platform. And that's going to help reduce a bit the cognitive load of these multiple teams. But there's often premature decisions about what should be in the platform and not enough flexibility to evolve the boundaries of platform, which that's how I interpret what um, Mike Fisher said as well, to some extent. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your interpretation of that. And I loved your advice for maybe starting with enabling work before platform work. And to go back to the analogy from earlier in the show of thinking of enabling work as services and platform work as product, it made me think of like software as a service companies. I've started a few software as a service companies and it a lot of them made a lot of sense to start off by providing a service and then eventually learning enough about the needs and customers to turn it into a product. And it sounds very similar to the advice you shared. I've seen examples where even it ends up that they realize the business model is not on creating a product, it's providing the services or this consulting in a way that is new or is different from others. And that's what actually helps the customers. And But of course, different business model from, from SaaS. But I've seen examples where they actually realized the value that we can provide to customers is around the enabling sort of aspects and the consulting and, and helping customers learn about this stuff versus the actual product. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on the topic of measurement. You half jokingly mentioned executives wanting to have lead time in six months. We talked earlier about how the North Star of platform work is to reduce cognitive load. So what have you seen as far like, how do you measure cognitive load? What are good and bad ways you've seen of measuring or proxying that? That's a great question. So many organizations don't measure cognitive load. I'm happy that the term cognitive load has been adopted uh, quite widely, because I think that's something we need to talk about at least. But then a lot of organizations don't actually try to assess cognitive load. And to be frank, it's not easy. And as a side note, that's actually part of the, the work we've been doing is around helping organizations measure team cognitive load. So there will be, uh, I can give the, the sneak uh, preview or the news that there will be a, a team cognitive load assessment um, tool that we're working on to help organizations. But I've seen examples where they actually, when they they talk to the teams and they had they use some simple surveys, which is something any organization can do, asking some questions from the teams, try to see where the, the areas that are causing more pain to teams, that we might look at it and say, actually, they shouldn't be focusing on it, or this shouldn't be as painful as it is today. And there was one example where in this, um, someone I know called uh, Alex Morgadas, and he was working at the at the company and they were doing this assessment, they realized actually the platform was focused on things that while they were helpful, were not where the pain was for the product teams. And so just doing that sort of simple assessment allowed them to understand actually we need to shift at least for now into other areas that the platform can help with. But yeah, it's not a straightforward to measure team cognitive load. What should be visible is when you're actually have the platforms and you have the enabling teams that you need doing the work in, in with the customers, with the other teams in mind, those teams should see in, in improvements in, for example, if you look at the DORA metrics, if you reduce the cognitive load of the team, it should be able to improve lead time, improve 
the reliability of our service as well, improve the reduced or improve the quality or reduced uh, failures because we now have more capacity to focus on our service, to focus on our product, to focus on our business, our customers, et cetera, because a lot of stuff that was consuming our capacity has been uh, provided by platform. That is sort of the ideal way. But as you said, it's not a clear cut kind of way to measure the value of platform or enabling teams. And that's where many organizations struggle. You've mentioned that you're working on a new talk now about the future of platform engineering and why platform engineering needs to be more than just about internal developer platforms. Can you share more about what your thinking is around this and how it's evolving? Sure. As I said earlier, I think there's a lot of potential beyond what our current focus is on platform engineering and more technical platforms. And we start to see some examples, but I think I like to think about what is platform in 10 years from now, for example, you might have, and I mentioned some examples where we're thinking about applying this platform thinking to other areas and we might have leadership as a platform. Partially, we might have a company as a platform and we might have HR or legal as a platform. So I think it's quite interesting. Of course, the naming, who knows, maybe we'll call it something else, but it's hard to, <laughs> to move away from the platform term. But if we have kind of more of a shared understanding of platform as this, how do we provide something to others that they can consume easily that can help them do their work more effectively without depending on us to do the work for them? I think that that's a good goal and can be applicable much more broadly than just developer platforms. I think it makes sense today. We're focused on that. But I think in we'll see over the coming years that I hope expanding this idea of both platform as well as enabling, right? And figuring out that we have a lot of internal customers in our organizations. So if we treat them more as, as customers, obviously they're also our peers, whatever we work on, that can be actually quite helpful for the organization itself, for efficiency, but also for people. I think no one likes to be blocked and to be have uh, dependencies that they don't control and that are you know, impacting their work and they're not allowed to able to do things in, in a more effective way. So I think it's exciting to think about that. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll do this podcast again in 10 years and see where we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully sooner than 10 years. And on that note, I want to say, yeah, so excited to follow all the upcoming work you've mentioned uh, on the show today. And so grateful to you for coming on the show and having this conversation with me. I think this will be really valuable to our listeners. Really enjoyed it myself. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, you can find detailed show notes and other content at our website, getdx.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Please also consider rating our show since this helps more listeners discover our podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode.